Well, good evening to you. The fellow goes to the doctor's office, goes into the little room. The doctor's already in there, and there's a mirror on the wall. And the fellow goes up to the mirror, and he says, Doc, I don't know what's going on. My hair's falling out. I've got these unexplained marks on my face. My skin's all pale, and I'm just feeling really down. And the doctor looked at him and said, I don't know what's wrong with you either, but your eyesight's in perfect condition. Man, I got a laugh out of Jerry. It is good to be together. I'm going to raise some issues for you to respond to this evening. These issues are going to be on parenting. Parenting. And so before we get to these issues, though, I want us to review a few passages concerning parenting. We know that God mandates that we not only obey Him, serve Him, trust Him, but also teach our children to do the same. Let's start off with a negative example, and then we'll come to some positive ones. Go back with me to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 22. 2 Chronicles 22. Notice that there is this king who comes to the throne. Verse 2. 2 Chronicles 22, verse 2. Forty and two years old was Ahaziah, Ahaziah when he began to reign. He was 42 years old. And he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter of Amri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. For his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. And notice the parenting issue right there. He walked wickedly before the Lord. For his mother, whose name was Athaliah, was his counselor to do wickedly. I think if you look at chapter 21, same book, verse 6. Speaking of Jehoram, it says, Second Chronicles 21, verse 6, And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab. For he had the daughter of Ahab to wife, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. You put that together, you've got Jehoram, who is married to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And then you look over to chapter 22, this one we're just reading about, and the mother's name is Athaliah. Athaliah ends up being the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And so we're not surprised to know about Ahab and Jezebel and their evil doings. And that was passed on to their daughter Athaliah. Now look at Athaliah, what she's passing on to her king's son, Ahaziah. She was his counselor to do wickedly. And so parenting is a huge responsibility. What, in most cases, what happens with parents, what happens with families is passed on to the next 
generation. We know the passages about parenting. Uh, Ephesians 6 and verse 4. We are to bring our children up in the nurture and the admonition or the nurture and discipline of the Lord. This is a tremendous parallel to one we know from the Old Testament, Proverbs 22 and verse 6, where the writer says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. So putting those two together, nurture and training up, they're very close in meaning. Nurture means to train, means to educate and to discipline and to help your child um, to walk in the way in which he should. Train up a child in the way he should go. That implies that there's a standard uh, of life uh, for our children. There's a path they need to walk in. This is the path of righteousness that they need to walk in, and we need to train them up in that way. Back to Ephesians 6, verse 4, it says, we are to train them up in the nurture of the Lord. And... The nurturer is what the Lord provides. In other words, the Lord, it, when, we, when we do it properly, it's the Lord who's doing the nurturing to our children, and he's using us to do that. The nurture is from him. It belongs to him. And when we bring our children up in the word of God, then it's the Lord doing that, and we're simply his agents or instruments or tools uh, to bring up our children. The children actually belong to the Lord. They're his children first and foremost. And we're to do uh, as he would have us to do with uh, the children. We need to tell our children that. That here's what you actually belong. You actually come from God. You're a gift from God. And here's what he wants me to do. He, he instructs me to do these things for you and with you. Psalm 127 uh, verses 3 through 5 says, As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of you. So we're to direct our children uh, to the proper target, which is the paths of righteousness. We, we remember uh, Joshua saying in Joshua 24, verse 15, As for me and my house, uh, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We remember the great example of Mary and Joseph as we read about Jesus and his growing up. Luke 2.52, it says, He increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. Luke 2, chapter 2, verse 52. We remember the godly mother and grandmother of Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, we read about um, Eunice. And we read about Lois, who brought up Timothy. And... Um, when you look over to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, we see they brought him up in the sacred scriptures, the holy scriptures. He had known the holy scriptures since he was a babe or since he was a, a small child. And this paid off. It paid off great um, in a great way. Here's what Paul says about Timothy in Philippians uh, chapter 2 and verse uh, 19 and 20. We see that... Um, Paul says, I hope, Philippians 2, 19 and 20, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will truly care for your state. They all seek their own, not the things of Jesus Christ, but you know the proof of Timothy 
that as um, that is with the child serving his father, so he has served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. Paul said, I can't think of a better person I'd like to have there with you to help you than Timothy. So that's because of the work that uh, Eunice and Lois did early on in Timothy's uh, life. So we're familiar with parenting, the, the principles of parenting, and the verses and the mandate that God gives us uh, toward parenting. Now, as we work our way to a couple of these issues, also remember this. God has called upon us. Actually, he gives us another mandate. He says, I want you to defend what I have established. I want you, my people, to defend what I have set up. And so, uh, for example, Paul says in Philippians 1.16 that he felt like he was set. God had placed him where he was for the defense of the gospel. The gospel must be defended. And it's up to us to do it. Jude 3 talks about contending for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, we are to be ready always to give an answer to every man who asks us concerning the hope uh, that is in us. And so God gives us the mandate to live for him, to teach our children to do the same, and to defend what he has set up, including the home, including the marriage, including, including the teaching that parents are to um, share with their, their children. Parenting is a huge responsibility. Uh, it involves, as you very well know, it involves uh, teaching in such a way that your children will love God, uh, obey Him, trust Him all their lives. But also on top of that, uh, it involves um, teaching them in such a way that they also at some point can turn around and defend the cause of God as well. So parenting is a huge responsibility, never, never to be taken lightly. Now, let me get to one issue I want to raise. One thing that Christian parents are accused of is uh, brainwashing their children. Okay. They're accused of brainwashing their children. Is this true? Someone help us. What's the definition there when people use the word brainwash? What's the, what's the definition of that? Manipulation, for one thing. Okay. Not uses the word manipulation. And that's, that's a big part of it. They feel like Christians manipulate their children in such a way to mold their mind to go in that one single uh, direction. Okay. How else would you define brainwashing? All right, that, that does sum it up pretty good. It's, it's uh, teaching or indoctrination that is forced upon someone. Okay, at least that's, that's the uh, outlook someone might have. So I want you to be considering that for just a minute. Is it the case that Christians brainwash their children? You know, Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9, does talk about how that God wants us to be talking uh, about his word, wants us to be teaching uh, his word to our children when they go to bed at night, when they rise up in the morning, uh, when they're walking through the house during the day, 
He wants us to be placing Scripture all over the house and just keep it before them. Uh, to a worldly mind, that might sound like brainwashing. Is it true that Christian parents, in following God's will, are they brainwashing, are they manipulating uh, their children? What if somebody came up to you and said, well, yeah, your, your children are Christians, but it's only because you brainwashed them. Okay. So Aaron responds by saying, it's not brainwashing, it's just simply people are accusing us of that because they want to be able to teach our children something else. And that that gets us started on on some good comments. Now, while you're thinking about that and contemplating a little bit more, let me go ahead and raise an additional, just a side issue to that. Some Parents, modern day parents, have heard this now for a while, and they they step back and they say, I think I was brainwashed. I think I was brainwashed when I was a child. And and so with my children, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And so they make the decision that they're just going to lay off. They're never going to push. They're never going to teach. They're not going to drive their children or encourage them or persuade them. They're going to say, it's going to be my child's decision all on their own and so that I won't be guilty of that manipulation. It's not possible. Okay. It's not possible? It's not possible. Okay. Every child is a blank slate. Everyone, everyone, no one has preconceived misconceptions. Those misconceptions come from somewhere. If you as a parent do not direct your child's thinking, someone or something else will. In our society, it's the television. Okay. Do what? Yeah, the iPads. And... All right. So. That's right. In fact, um, I meant to look up this verse, and um, I think it has a 15 and 29 in it. But I don't know if the 15 comes first or 29 comes first. But it is in Proverbs, and. It may not be 15 or 29, but it says something like this. A child left to himself brings shame to his mother. But back to what Aaron was saying, it is certainly, the, the idea is certainly correct what he was saying. If we don't bring up our children, then somebody will or something will. For someone to say, I'm just going to back off because I don't want to be, I don't want to be guilty of manipulating my child, then what you're actually saying is, I'm going to let somebody else do what I should do. And that somebody or something else will be the iPad or the advertising or the friends at school or some family member you don't really want them to be around. You don't have any of those in your family, do you? So we do. We got those. Um, but somebody, 
somebody will will do that. That's a good point. Also, there's no such thing as not indoctrinating. Is that sort of what you're saying? There's no such thing as that. If you decide not to indoctrinate your your child, that just simply means you are espousing the doctrine of no doctrine. Okay. You're teaching the philosophy of uh, that a child shouldn't be taught anything unless he just absorbs it from somebody else. But that in itself is a philosophy. That the parent is not teaching. That the parent is not teaching. That's right. Not doing a good job of the parent. No. Your verse while we go over Proverbs 29.15. All right. Proverbs 29.15 is a good one to uh, underline in your Bible. A, a child left to himself will bring shame to his mother. That just simply points out the thing that we all know, that children need guidance. They need us when they come into the world. They need us physically, of course, but they especially need us uh, spiritually. And that's why God has mandated us to bring them up in, in the nurture of the Lord. Okay. So going back to this issue, the first issue, is it brainwashing? Is it, you, and we've got to be ready to answer this and to... Give, um, give a response, and we've had good responses already, but would someone like to elaborate a little bit more on if someone said, well, you just brainwashed uh, your child? You could, you could give them instructions in the book that's the most important thing in one's life and take the kid how to take that book and they can find out how to Brother Nathan's saying part of our great responsibility in bringing children up is to teach them how to use the book. And if we teach them how to use the book and show them that, that our faith is not coming from our emotions, it's not coming from the standpoint of, well, we've already always had it, but rather it's coming from God, then they'll be able to stand on their own. And he, he uses the word equip. We're not brainwashing our children. We are equipping them. We're giving them the tools. You know, we're giving them the framework. When we give them the word of God, we're giving them the framework where they can really approach the world and, and really search out God for themselves. Okay. If a person is brainwashed, they don't get to think for themselves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ms. K is saying that if, uh, the idea of a person being brainwashed is they don't think for themselves. And so that's the, isn't that the furthest thing from, from Christianity, at least talking about true Christianity, is not interested in, in saying, believe this because I believe it. Okay. You believe this because you see it for yourself. We might be reminded of um, the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, and 12. What does that say about the Bereans? What does it say about the Bereans? They search the scriptures daily 
to see whether the things they were hearing was so or not? Did it, does it connect to what we already know, does it connect to the Old Testament prophecies? They were, they were checking that out, which is exactly, that makes a strong church, that makes a strong family when everybody is, is checking the book. So, Brother Nathan, um, good response. get that foundation and then you get them to think for themselves and then you get them to think because they all know for themselves. That's right. Good. Now, my thought on this is there are only two worldviews in life. When you open up the Bible, what do you read? In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God. Uh, that's the only two worldviews there are, either God or not God. It's either God or it's matter. It's either God or it's humanism. There are no, there's only two worldviews. And parents will bring one of those two worldviews upon their children. Even if they decide, I'm going to give no effort whatsoever to parenting, then they will be bringing a worldview upon their children. There's no, there's no way around it. Um, to support that, uh, if we look at Romans uh, 1, you remember this uh, very well. But in Romans 1, as Paul speaks of uh, some in the uh, Gentile world, he says, um, verse 21, Because that knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither gave thanks, but became vain in their reasonings, and their senseless heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And then they changed the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of an image of corruptible man or birds or four-footed beast or creeping things. See, those are the two worldviews. You either worship God or you worship the world, something in the world. You worship yourself, you worship man, you worship matter, you worship a beast, you're going to worship something. And... So parenting is about which worldview. You know, it's about the battle in our in our world is about starting points. Okay, what starting points? And so that's what a worldview is. That's where do you start in your reasoning? Okay, where do you start? You start with God, or do you start with with man? Do you start with God, or do you start with with the earth, the matter? Think about the Grand Canyon for a second. So it's interesting, two worldviews going on constantly all the time, and you have two different conclusions coming, but you've got the same evidence. You've got the, everybody has access to the Bible, everybody has access to the world, okay, but you come out with two different conclusions, but it's because you have two different starting points. You take the Grand Canyon, okay? Humanist goes to the Grand Canyon and sees all these layers and layers and layers of rock and sediment and fossils. And he says that equals evolution. That equals 150 million years. Okay. But where is he starting? His starting, point, his starting point is no God, matter. Matter. Materialistic things matter. That's his starting point. But that's not how we would approach the Grand Canyon. How would we approach it? In the beginning, God created it, but 
go further than that. What do you think? Do what? Always been there? Right. Specifically about the Grand Canyon, where would you go? Yeah, that's right. We know that there was a, a global catastrophe that's as real as anything. And it makes great more sense that these layers and layers of, of sediment and fossils and plants and animals were all in that particular spot because they were being swept away with a flood and they were buried and they were trapped and now they're preserved. The likings of these plants and animals are preserved in rock. That's our viewpoint, that's our worldview. How do we know that the God worldview is better than the matter worldview? Okay, matter doesn't give any hope. God, God does. When the scientific record is examined with an open mind, it proves unmistakably. It's proven. Scientific record, approach with an open mind, proves you've got to go to God. Let me ask you a couple questions about that. Can matter create itself? If it could, we'd see it happening. Matter cannot create itself. Right. Second question, is matter eternal? That's right. Even your, even your evolutionists admit to this. Because they, they change their, their years a lot. You know. They'll say the earth is 120, what? Is it million or billion? That's just, I, I don't know. But they'll put a date to it, in other words. By putting a date to it, whether it's 120 million or 120 billion years, they're saying that, the, that matter is not eternal. It had a beginning at some point. Okay, so matter is not eternal. So something, since matter cannot create itself, then something non-matter had to create the matter, had to create what we see, had to create us, something non-matter. It can't be matter, so it has to be mind. Right? And it had to be a pretty intelligent mind at that. And it had to be a pretty powerful person. Okay? Mind equals personality, so it had to be a pretty intelligent, powerful personality who made all this happen. Of course, the Bible calls this person, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. If we evolved from, like, an ape or something, we'd be evolving into something else pretty soon. Yeah, we, Mark says we evolved from an ape or something, we necessarily be evolving into something else pretty soon. What would the other apes do? Would they strike Do what? Yeah, the other apes just start and decide they want to stay ape. Did they have that choice? Were they given a vote? You can't take the earth because it's made full grown. Adam's made full grown, so it's the earth, and you can't take either one of them. Okay. 
I'm not saying you can't date the earth, can't date uh, man because um, it made the full grown. You know, we're not def definitely not saying the earth is millions of years old. In fact, putting a little history together with the Bible account, um, we can land on the fact that the earth is much less than 10,000 years old. Let's come down to that. But nonetheless, even the atheists will say that the earth is not eternal, it cannot create itself. Where does that take you then? As far as the origin of life. Hebrews 3, 4 uh, says, um, every, house is, every house is built by someone, he that built all things is God. And so, uh, one response to this is, well, what's your worldview? There's not but two. Not but two. Which one are you going to use with your parents? Which one are you going to use with your grandchildren? Right. Let me bring up another uh, issue that comes from this brainwashing uh, issue. And that is, when you begin reading, you see that a lot of unbelievers were actually not only accused of brainwashing, but actually harming our children. That Christianity harms our children. That Christianity actually is an abuse. In fact, I was reading in psychologytoday.com and one of the writers uses the word abusive several times in direct relation to Christian parents bringing up their children to be Christians. He uses the word abuse, abusive. You know. I wonder how far they're going to take that you know, conservative ideals are being scrapped everywhere. You look. I wonder if they're going to work their way in a few years to, to trying to prop up the idea that to simply bring your child up in biblical ways is abusive to that child. That's exactly what this guy was saying. I want to share with you, not only did he say this, his name is Phil uh, Zuckerman, and uh, he writes for Psychology uh, Today. He not only said this, but he tried to explain it. He gave some specifics, and I want you to hear these. Okay. He says, Christianity is abusive to children because parents teach that their children are sinners. That their children are sinners. He says, this is, a, this is harmful, harmful to the children. You should be saying to your children that they are wholesome, that they're good, and that they're... Um, that they have boundless uh, good, goodness in them. You shouldn't be telling them that they're sinners. Okay. What's your response to that? They're saved because they reach the age of accountability. Okay. Yeah. So true Christianity teaches that children are innocent until they become uh, adults. That's right. But even at that, even at that, we still teach children the need for Jesus. We still teach children that there is the reality of sin, and they would still say that is harmful to them. Is it harmful? Is it harmful for children to hear about sin and wrongdoing and the need for a Savior?
just so happen to be a human being, so you might assume that something like that exists in you too. And it might be useful to learn how to manage that within yourself and to be aware that it's there. Right. Instead of just being naive and saying, well, you shouldn't be mentioning sin. I think it's very um, helpful to children to know why it is that bad things happen. Why is it that people do wrong? Why is it parents mess up? Okay. That there is the reality of sin in the world. Why is it weird? If there is no sin, there's no salvation, and there's no Savior. And so if, if you keep that from children, then it doesn't make sense to children that were coming here and praising the Lord because of his salvation. We should never teach that children are born sinful. Of course, that's not biblical. But still, at the same time, we don't keep the truth from them because they will be, but James was saying, they will be dealing with life and they'll be dealing with people and it's, it's totally helpful from a number of standpoints. Okay, another specific he gives is we teach that the, there's a devil. He says that's, that's nonsensical to teach children. There's, there's no, why would... Why would mature, grown parents teach their children that there is a, such a thing as a creature, an evil creature called Satan or the devil? He thinks that's very harmful. What would you say to him? Hmm. We don't try to pray like prisons are so much bigger in the whole world. That's true. If we, we don't. don't we don't train our children right, then society will suffer. Surely there's not any society in the world where you don't cross a line in your behavior and you will get into trouble, big trouble. Yep. How, how, Somewhere how, along the way. How would they explain the evil of the world? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what Larry and Kay both are saying is name a society where there is not some line that is crossed and someone calls it not right. You know? And then Larry's saying, ask them how you explain evil. The Bible gives very specific answers as to how it is that evil is here and who is behind that. And there is this one that the Lord calls Satan or the devil. But um, if they don't like that, then, then explain how it is that that evil's here. But also on top of that, when we're discussing these matters with people, um, talk to them about things unseen. Do you believe there are things unseen? Do you believe that matter is all there is to life? Is all there is to life just what you see? Or do you believe there are some things that are unseen that, that impact your life? Most people do have a belief in unseen things. It may be limited, but there is a belief there. And so it's not so far-fetched then to believe that there is an invisible God and there are unseen angels and the devil came from the, the, um, the creation of angels. The devil was most likely once an angel falling, falling bad. And so, but I would focus on on the fact that there are unseen things. Most people understand that, that that's the case. Now, the next thing he says that makes Christianity so harmful, and he really um, 
stresses this. He said, Christianity teaches there's a God that killed his own son for our wickedness. And he calls that abusive. He calls that um, uh, fanatical. That you'd be serving a God. Why would we teach our children it's okay to kill your own son for the benefit of somebody else? He gives the illustration and says, and I'm, I'm coming right from what he said. Okay. He says, well, that's about like me saying, I, I abuse my wife so I need to kill my cat to make amends for it. Nothing wrong with killing. Um, I'm trying to see, I'm trying to get us to understand where the world comes from and how... Well, so he does need to do a lot of reading and understand. He's coming, he's coming to God as if God is some man that killed his own son. And that totally, and it is the case that most of the time the, the critics of Scripture and the critics of God are those who have, who have read the least about it. have a problem understanding that there's someone smarter than them. But he gave the illustration how that his daughter at eight years old ended up going with a friend to some sort of church event and they brought out the crucifixion of Jesus and that his daughter ran out of there scared and she asked him, why did you make me go to that place? And so he, from that point on, he said, I'll never, would never allow his daughter to go close to a church. The better question would have been, why did he have enough parental awareness to go with her? Yeah. Or to have taught her so that, so that he could explain things properly. Right. And again, apparently he didn't have them explained properly to him. Okay. Sound like it starts at home. The problem with his daughter started at home, not at church. Yeah. Whatever church she went to. It would have been more responsible, uh, Aaron Ken saying, for him to go find out for himself and to do some studying and, and reading up on it uh, as well. So, what does he allow his daughter to do? Um, not go to church. <laughs> That's, no, but does he let her go to other places where she could be harmed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or he keeps her away from the evil influences of Christianity is about all he said in the, in the article. He didn't really elaborate as to where his kids would go. So he gives these four specifics. So one would be the reality of sin, the reality of the devil, and then God killing his own son. Then he said it's harmful to children to teach them about heaven and hell, that if you accept Jesus, then you're going to heaven. If you don't, if you happen not to, then you're going hell. He says that creates smugness among those who have accepted Jesus. It creates self-righteousness. It creates a superiority ideal in your own mind, in the children's mind. I wanted to give you a sample 
uh, some of the things that were said about Christian parents and how that we need to defend what God uh, has definitely set up. He gave his son. He gave his son. He gave his son in But he gave his son because, as you say, because of sin. Because of our sin. And raised him back up so we could have salvation and the hope that Matt was mentioning a moment ago. Larry simply saying, just looking at history, would see you'd see that our country fared so much better when we were founded on these principles of Scripture, and uh, in comparison to other nations and world history. Your excellent point. Brother Paul mentioning Christ's statement in John 10, 17 and 18, where he says, No man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. Jesus freely gave himself for us. That's a good point. And as all of you have been saying, just doing a little reading and studying would help so much uh, when people start trying to criticize. Thank you so much. I just wanted to raise that and it just became an interest to me that there was so much of that idea of brainwashing and, and abusive talk concerning Christian parents and I wanted to uh, share some of those thoughts with you and see how you uh, responded. Appreciate you being in Bible class this evening. We'll take about a five minute break. <laughs>